Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Okay, everyone, let's, let's start gathering up again. I've got another couple thousand years to cover still. All right, so I'm going to uh, go over a few things. I'm going to start with a general and very short version of what we call salvation history. And I think what you'll notice is that when you read the Bible as a whole then it helps to be able to have a, a, a bigger context to put things in. Uh, one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they'll pick up the Bible and they'll think it was either written all at the same time, like God, God just showed up and said, hey, here's your Bible, you know, so read it. And uh, he just gave it to the, I don't know, gave it to Jesus to give to the disciples or something like that. Uh, but the, the Bible is written over thousands of years. And the earliest... Um, references that worked their way or stories that worked their way into the scriptures could be uh, like 1500 BC, which is like 3,500 years uh, before us. And then the latest books of the Bible, like the book of Revelation and some of John's letters would have been up around 100 AD or so. So, so you've got a huge time frame in there. But at the same time, you do have this consistent thread that from beginning to end, you have basically how God created the world, entered into our world, brought about our salvation, and, and how this starts. Actually, if you're looking at the very beginning of Genesis, you've got this creation story. Well, that's how God created the world, and this had that original intention of how he wanted this relationship to be between him and human beings. But very, very early on from that, there was that, um, well, as you know, we're kind of stubborn. We sin. And, you know, the whole Adam and Eve thing is about sin. And, and after they were disobedient, that disrupted uh, that original harmony or that relationship that God wanted with his people, that perfect relationship. And from that point on, God began his plan to bring about salvation for his people. And so we can see this in the very beginnings when he first says, okay, well, we're going to start forming, we, anyway, we're going to start forming uh, a bit of a, an understanding here that these human beings need to be saved. So therefore, we're going, to, we're going to enter into their experience and start moving them toward the path of salvation. And so it happened very gradually. So sometimes people will read some of the earlier books of the New Testament. Like, well, how come everyone's killing everybody? You know, how come, how come there's incest? And how come they're, you know, they're raping people? And, you know, there's all this bloodshed. And, and you can read it and you say, well, you know, why would God want this to be in the Bible? Well, keep in mind, he had to start somewhere. And so it's almost like if you're, if you're dealing with a little kid, you've got to start somewhere, right? And then you'll notice is the, the, the books of the Bible progress Morality progresses, understanding of God progresses, that covenant bond and relationship, which I'll talk about covenants later, but that progresses as well. And the whole point is to get to the point where Jesus comes and then the fullness of truth is revealed. 
and that is through his teaching, his death, and his resurrection, and through that act, then we have that salvation that God intended. And then, while that is in process, we wait for the culmination at the new heavens and the new earth. But it kind of goes, I'm just going to talk off the top of my head here. All right, so Adam and Eve, and then you have the first sin. And one thing you'll notice is like years. Have you ever noticed in the very beginning, people live like hundreds and hundreds of years. So they're like living 900 years and 800 years and 600 years. And, and then as time goes on, though, those years get shorter and shorter and shorter until you get up past the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. And then all of a sudden, it's pretty much like normal lifespans. Well, theologically, it's written that way because the sin goes out and it starts to infect but it takes a while for the effect of sin to work its way into the average lifespans of people. And so at first, it's very subtle, and you've got hundreds of years, and then you've got fewer and then fewer and fewer until basically the human race is saturated and the world is saturated with the consequence of that sin. So that's why those years start out big and they go smaller and smaller and smaller as time goes on. You know, So that's, that's the theological reason. Um, in addition to this, God selects people. Sometimes in, the, in theology, they talk about the scandal of exclusivity, you know, or particularity. And uh, did you notice God chose Abraham? You know, but he didn't choose someone in China. He didn't choose someone in the New World. He chose Abraham from the Middle East. And then before that, he chose Noah. And, you know, so there's this idea of these particular people who are being chosen. Um, after Abraham, then you've got his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's kids form those 12 symbolic uh, that would become the 12 tribes. And so here God is working within that family of Abraham. And again, this is because of God's promise to Abraham. We'll get to Abraham, but uh, God's promise to Abraham is that he was going to use Abraham where he would get land, descendants, and blessing. And so after God establishes a covenant relationship with Abraham and then his children, now God is beginning to form Abraham and the patriarchs, or Abraham's children, and his descendants to be his particular people. Eventually, as you know, they, they worked their way down into Egypt. And in Egypt, they began to be forced into labor, hard forced labor. And eventually, Moses goes in um, at God's prompting, and he brings out through the Exodus, the Hebrews. And so the Hebrews come back and 40 years, they're in the desert. 40 is kind of a symbolic number as well. 40 is a number that comes up all the time. Jesus is 40 years in the desert. You know, so the 40 years in the desert doesn't necessarily mean 40 actual years in the desert. It could be more, it could be less, but it, you know, I'll get to the numbers in a bit too. But the point there is that God has a special relationship with this kind of remnant that he will begin to reveal himself to. And so he reveals himself to Moses, gives the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but the Mosaic law. So now the Hebrews are coming into the Holy Land and they have the law and they have Moses and they're living that special relationship in a new covenant, the Mosaic law. And so they're following that, but they have to come in and they have to settle into Israel, which at that time was called Canaan. And as they're settling into Canaan, God begins to develop a special relationship with the 12 tribes within the geographical uh, borders of Israel. 
It takes a while for this to take place, by the way, because these different tribes, you know, they start settling in Canaan, but um, it's not like they went in and just conquered the whole thing once and for all. It was, there, were, there continued to be other civilizations and other cultures that were there alongside of them. Eventually what happens is there's a monarchy. So you have first Saul and then you have David. So King David, for the first time, unites all of the 12 tribes under one king. And they are united Israel for the first time. And so this is another moment where God enters a special relationship with the Davidic uh, monarchy. Right, so you've got Noah, then or okay, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, and then you've got the patriarchs. Then you have Moses, and then you have the uh, uh, the twelve tribes settling in there, and then you have King David and King Solomon. And there's a, a special covenant relationship that happens with Abraham, happens well also with Noah, happens with uh, King David, and then during this time. The Davidic monarchy, there's this promise that his kingdom would last forever. And so many people just assumed that it would literally last forever, that there would always be a Davidic king on the throne. But that didn't happen. But what did happen is there was this idea that there would be a descendant of King David who would be the Messiah, and the Messiah would restore everything like God originally intended. All right, so again, God starts out slow. Abraham, okay, Abraham, here's what you need to do. And then he comes up to the Mosaic Law. Okay, Ten Commandments, and this is how you need to live. You need to be a special people, and this will be a particular land, and I will use you to be my light to the nations. Then, then you've got the uh, uh, Davidic monarchy, which begins the idea of uh, that line of succession that the Messiah would come from. And then when you have Jesus, through his teaching, his death, and his resurrection, this is where he destroyed sin and death. By his death and resurrection, all those problems that started after the disruption with sin is overcome through Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus starts the church. And so another way to look at it is there's a new sheriff in town. All right. So prior to Jesus, the world was living as if there was no resolution. So the best that they could hope for is that, well, we'll try to live according to the law. And then this will enable us to be able to be a special people in relationship with God. Um, but with Jesus, because he went to the source of the problem and defeated sin and death, then now all of a sudden it has no power over God's people. And it's in the process that we can live within his kingdom even now. We don't have to wait till we die and go to heaven. We can live in God's kingdom now. And while we're living in that kingdom, we know that we're on the winning side. And eventually... There will be a time when there is a new heavens and a new earth and God will complete his plan of salvation and there will be no sin, no death. It's when the the lions and the lambs eat hay together and all that. But this is the final culmination that will happen. But this is what we call salvation history. So when we read the Old Testament, we we have to remember that we're placing it within the context of a particular time in that overall plan of salvation history. So when you're reading something about uh, the Hebrews going into the promised land and they're killing everybody in the city because they need to settle in the promised land, and you're thinking, well, Jesus wouldn't want that. Well, of course Jesus wouldn't want that, right? But at that time, it was necessary for other reasons. Um, Sometimes people read, uh, like with Abraham, for example, he married uh, Sarah, who was his uh, dad's 
wife's sister. So basically, Sarah was, you know, like a half-sister of Abraham. Well, that was prevented later on, but at the time of Abraham being selected, that, that wasn't prevented because God hadn't trained his people yet. He hasn't come to that point yet. He hadn't revealed some of the do's and don'ts about who you can marry and who you can't. That came later with Moses. And so sometimes people read these things and they'll say, you know, well, there's all this killing and stuff. But again, that's because they're not able to get out of their American mindset or their Western mindset and try to put themselves back at a different time in history. Well, people didn't know what we know today and they didn't have the fullness of revelation in Jesus. And so we can't hold them to the same standard that we should be holding ourselves to. Uh, The scary thing about this is because we know better and we still do worse things. So, well, anyway, you can follow that train of thought. I always find it when people get all high and mighty about what the people should have been doing thousands of years ago. And then you look at what we're doing today. and Somehow they don't care so much about that. You know, they just want to look for an excuse to attack religion in general. Okay, so. Yeah, I kind of discussed that. All right, so now there was a document written. If you've, if you've, have you, any of you have heard of uh, Vatican II? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Vatican II. Has any, have any of you read Vatican II documents? All right, there are a few documents you should read. I agree, a lot of them can go on forever and who knows what's going on. But Dave Erbum would be one, and it's not even that long. But the document Dave Erbum. Uh, the other one's Lumen Gentium, if you're curious, the uh, theology of the church. But uh, Dave Erbum talks about how God reveals himself to his people. So that whole thing is salvation history, which I just kind of threw at you from memory. Um, it goes through and systematically explains a lot of that. And um, what this particular document does is it, it talks about how God reveals himself. So sometimes we think of the word of God right here, right? Word of God's the Bible. But does God speak to us in other ways other than the Bible? Well, he does, doesn't he? And so what Dave Erbin wants to do is it wants to put the scriptures within the context of God's full revelation. Because even if, even if we don't have a Bible, it's still possible that God could speak to us, and he does speak to us in different ways. Um, some examples of this, just like uh, um, through seeing the beauty of nature, someone can come to the conclusion that God exists, you know, or understanding that I'm here when I shouldn't be. I can't make myself be here. So there must be someone who created me. You know, there is natural reason that we have that does say something about God. And so that's what we call natural law. But it's also something that God speaks to us in in various ways. And so it talks about it. First of all, there's reason in revelation. So it happens through natural knowledge that we can know something about God just by having our wits about us and being observant. And I I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks this way, but I think the existence of God is self-evident. What we've done as human beings is we've talked ourselves out of that. It's like there's no kid I've ever talked to that is two or three years old and says, I don't believe in God, you know, because it's just natural that they have some sort of connection it's only after a certain amount of time when people say, oh, yeah, you're, you believe in fairy tales, and you know, but people can get talked out of it. But I think there's just something inside of us who knows that God exists, and we can see evidence all around us, even if we don't read the Bible or go to church. You know, I, was, I had a, a conversation with a lady from China, um, 
knew nothing about anything when it comes to religion because at this time especially, China was you know, pretty much like an atheistic, communistic country. So I was explaining to her that I was a priest. Well, what is a priest? And I said, well, I, uh, you know, and how do you explain these things to someone, you know? I said, well, I say I, I kind of help people to understand who God is, how to pray to him, how to understand him and what he has to say. And, and uh, in the context of this, she said, oh, you mean you can talk to God? And I'm like, yeah. And then she was so excited. She was, you mean you can really talk to God? I mean, I can talk to him and he can hear me? I'm like, yeah, that's what we call prayer. But you can really talk to God? Because she just, for some reason or another, she knew God existed, but she thought that God is inaccessible, you know? So anyway, there are some of these things we just take for granted. But anyway, natural knowledge and reason. Well, there is that salvation history that I talked about where it begins... Over time, and God is a God of history. He didn't just come all at once and then just zap everything into existence. He started and, and worked over thousands of years, started with a particular people, and he worked his plan of salvation out through history. In addition to that, there's this culmination that happens with Jesus' death and resurrection. So all things point toward the cross, and then now that we are beyond that, a couple thousand years in the other direction, Um, If we want to know anything about salvation history, we look back toward the cross because that's where our salvation is found. So in the Old Testament, it's looking forward to the cross. Well, when I say that, I mean Jesus' teaching, death, and resurrection. Now we look back to Jesus' teaching, death, and resurrection for the fullness of truth and everything that we need when it comes to um, our proper relationship with God. Fullness of revelation is what we call it. And because of that, it doesn't mean that we know everything there is to know about all things. But what it does mean is that everything that is true and good um, does go back to those saving events. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. So there's always something new that can be revealed. uh, But it still all goes back to that death and resurrection and the proclamation and the gospel of Jesus himself is the fullness of that understanding. Anyway, maybe I'm rambling here, but that's kind of an important point. In addition to this, we have that culmination of salvation history. And then we look at the Old Testament as Christians as containing pointers that direct us to Jesus and his saving um, life, death, resurrection, and teachings. And if we're careful, we can see these parallels or these archetypes where we can see these premonitions of what will come. Like even Moses, for example, talks about a prophet that will come after him. And uh, even in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, you know, God, after the original sin of Adam and Eve, he talks about, you know, well, I'll fix this one day. You know, I mean, there's, there's this premonition that in these clues that come up. So we read the Old Testament as if it points to the reality of the New Testament, which is to come. Okay, in addition to that, there is something we call tradition. So, most of you, I think, understand this. There are traditions, and then there is tradition. All right, traditions. When you cook the pot roast, keep it at 350 degrees in this family. You know, so there's those kind of things. In, in the church, we have traditions as well. You know, prayers can change. Translations can change. The way we stand, kneel, sit... 
the way we sing, what we sing, uh, the particular instruments we use in music, um, all those things can change. Those are our traditions. Tradition with the big T, that's different. A tradition with a big T is basically the ancient faith and understanding in which what we do and why we do it was always understood. All right, so for example, um, you can read the Bible, and in the Bible it says, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, do this in remembrance of me, and uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. And we can read all that in the Bible, but as you all know as well as I do, you can explain anything away if you want. And one of the ways to understand what it really means is to understand the faith in which it came from. So when I'm reading about the context of the Eucharist, and I'm seeing these passages about the Last Supper, and then St. Paul explaining it, and then John's Gospel, and um, how do I know what's really meant? By understanding the faith in which the Bible was originally written. And the church, from the beginning, for 2,000 years, has always believed in the true presence of the Eucharist. And so historically, you can show that the church has always believed in the true presence of the Eucharist. And so if that's the case, why would I, 2,000 years later, think that I somehow have a brand new insight that is going to change how the church always understood and lived the faith in which the Bible came from? You see what I mean by that? And so those are big T traditions. I I had a conversation once where... um, Usually when people come to the door and they want to talk theology, um, I'll usually just kind of say, oh, God bless you, let's pray or whatever, you know, but I won't typically get too much into it because, you know, they're not necessarily looking at it. But in this case, they said, well, what's stopping you from, you know, what's stopping you from, I think it was Jehovah's Witness, actually. So what's stopping you? And I said, well, to be honest with you, you know, I can show historically that the early church from the very beginning always understood Jesus to be divine. And if that's the case, I just find it really hard to believe that, you know, 1,900 years later, a beginner of a new church would come up with a novel new idea, and somehow that's going to be correct, when the original understanding of the church was always that Jesus was divine. And there was no great apostasy. Historically speaking, what the church believed in the very beginning was consistent. And you can show that through the doctors and the fathers of the church. And, you know, and I'm... I'm explaining this, and I can tell that they're getting a little uncomfortable with it. Um, But then at one point, they were kind of pushing me on it. And so I said, well, what if I could show you that the disciples themselves believed that Jesus was divine? You know, because I can show that as well. Because you can look at the scriptures in conjunction with the history, and it gives the fuller context of why it was written in why these particular verses of Scripture were written in the way that it did. This is what we call big T tradition, right? And anyway, so they said, well, I still wouldn't believe it. And I'm like, if the disciples themselves believe that Jesus was divine, you don't believe it? And they're like, no, because the Bible's the Word of God. The disciples' opinion isn't the Word of God. And I'm like, well, I don't know, how to, I don't know what to say about that, you know. But, but we as Catholics, and this is what Dave Arabim is saying, is that that we approach things within a constant tradition, which doesn't mean like man-made traditions and all this kind of stuff. What it means is how the faith was always understood. So we accept that as how we understand, especially key aspects of Scripture, like I just mentioned, you know, like the 
resurrection of Jesus. So if someone comes up to you and says, well, I'm a good Catholic. I just don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You say, well, you're outside of the faith on that, you know, because Jesus rose from the dead. It's pretty evident. That's what the faith has always believed. And, uh, well, I'm a good Catholic, but I don't believe in the Eucharist or whatever it might be. Well, that is what we call big T tradition. So anyway, we as a church understand the scriptures within the context of the faith in which it was written. Hopefully this is common sense kind of stuff. But still, I mention that because when we're reading the Bible, people can make a couple mistakes with it. One mistake is to think that it speaks just fine all by itself, and you don't want anyone else or anything else to add any context to it or, or, you know, or frame it. Whereas Catholics, we say, no, it should be framed in the faith in which it was written because that's how you understand what it really means. And otherwise, you can make it say whatever you want. All right, so that's what Dave Arabum is saying in that context. An- another, I think, false uh, thing would, would be that somehow the church has an authoritative understanding of every single verse that's in the Bible. And that's not true either. You know, there are certain parameters, but there is a lot in the Bible that's still open to various interpretations. And there's still a lot of discernment and discussion about certain aspects of the Bible. And is it supposed to be understood this way or is it supposed to be understood this way? You know, and, and the church has left that open in some instances. So most of the Bible is actually kind of still open for newer, or I shouldn't say newer novel, but just like a deeper understanding in, in various ways of looking at it. And uh, I'll, I'll talk a little later about some of those things. But, but the thing is, things like rosaries, novitas, um, fasting during Lent, those are little T traditions. Those things can come and go. The big T traditions, those are what we understand as being part of what forms us as we read the Scripture. Okay. And by the way, in Mass, does anyone know what are the, the two liturgies that we have at Mass? Liturgy of the Word, Liturgy of the Eucharist, right? So Vatican II says that, that those two liturgies should be reverenced in a similar manner. So they talk about the two altars, the altar of the Word or the altar of the Eucharist. And I, I find it a little odd because I don't think we've caught up with that yet. And the reason why I mention it is because people have an understanding of the, uh, the awesome presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but then they pretend that Jesus is not the same, you know, or not significantly present in the Word. And those two are always supposed to go together. So the, the idea of the word and the sacrament are always supposed to be together. And Vatican II says that we should reverence one like the other because they're both Jesus speaking in different ways or God speaking in, in different ways or acting in a different way. And like, for example, Eucharistic congresses and stuff like that. You ever heard of those? So they have these Eucharistic workshops and they have Eucharistic congresses and all this stuff. How many Bible congresses have you seen? Have you noticed that? Not many. So I think we as Catholics have a long way to go in that regard. I think what, what we do is we say, you know, well, we have the Eucharist, you know, and that's true, we do, and a lot, of the, a lot of the Protestant churches don't. So we emphasize the Eucharist sometimes at the expense of the Bible. Or we think, oh, the Protestants have the Bible. We'll give it to them. 
you know, but it's the book of the church. So we need to reclaim that. And as Catholics, when you go to mass, keep in mind that we're doing two things. We're receiving the word of God that feeds us and we're supposed to feed on it in, in a way that is similar to feeding on the Eucharist. So we feed on the word of God and then we feed on Jesus's true presence, true presence in the Eucharist, the risen Jesus. And so the combination of the word and the sacrament is the fuller understanding of what the mass is all about. So, so when people say, well, I'll just show up before the Eucharist and I'm good. You know, you're missing, you're missing it there. Or you get the father, when's the last moment that I can show up and still receive communion? Okay, so, so sometimes people wonder, it's like, okay, well, according to Dave Arabum, Vatican II, so does that mean the church is over the scripture? Or does it mean that the scripture is over the church? You know, like, for example, Protestants say that, you know, sola scriptura, you know, all theology and everything is based in the Bible. Well, we as Catholics are a little uncomfortable with that because we say, well... You know, there, there's got to be some kind of governing authority. And even Protestants have their theological biases that they, they kind of bring the Bible into. But the way that we explain it is the church serves the scripture and the scripture serves the church. So neither one is over the other, but they both serve each other. So, for example, like I mentioned, the big T tradition of the Eucharist, that serves the proper understanding of the scripture. And the scripture serves the proper practice and understanding of the Eucharist. So you see how they work together, basically. So it's like having enough legs that you can stand. Inspiration is something else that I probably should mention for a little bit. Um, Some people believe that the Bible is the word of God, therefore God wrote it out of his own hand and then just kind of sent it to earth, and there it is. And it's an overly simplistic understanding of how the Bible is written. The Bible has human authors and it was written over thousands of years, as I mentioned. So there are two parts to the, the word of God. One is human, the other is divine. So human beings with their own faculties, without being possessed. So it's not like God says, okay, John, I'm going to possess you. Boom! You will write exactly what I want you to write, and you won't think or have any share in it. You know, that's not how it works. John using his own faculties, John using his own skills and writing skills or lack of. Actually, John was an interesting writer, but... Um, he's writing this gospel, but at the same time, using all of his faculties and skills, he is inspirited, and there is a partnership that is happening here where God's Holy Spirit is helping John to write what is inspired and from God at the same time using his own faculty, skills, and, and style of writing. So those two work together perfectly. Now, philosophically, I can say after studying philosophy and all that stuff, it it does hold philosophically. But you may think, well, where else does that happen in in our existence or in our world? Um, I'll give you one example. Jesus, right? He was human. He was divine. So it's not like he had his human body that was separated from his divineness and that somehow they were kind of walking side by side. They were together, united in one person. And so Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Uh, We have a hard time, I think, imaging this, but we know through faith that that's who Jesus was. He was a fully human being. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't pretending to be human. When he died on the cross, he died as a human being. He didn't die as as a ghost or someone who appeared to be human. 
He wasn't an angel. Um, so he was human and divine. All right, so the Bible is kind of like that. It's human and divine. All right, I'll give you another example. When, when you've got a priest doing the Eucharist, um, he uses his own faculties. Like when I'm doing consecration, all that, I'm using my words, um, my motions and everything else. And, uh, you know, my messing up of words or getting them right. You know, basically it's, it's me as a human being. But at the same time, I'm in the person of Christ. And so who is really the one who makes bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ? It's not me, right? Yeah, it's Jesus. So I am in the person of Christ, but Christ is doing the action, but he's using me as, as a partner in a sense. And I am doing that in connection with him, but I'm not being possessed by him to do that. All right, so that's another example. Uh, some of you are married. Same sort of thing. You know, there's, there's a human and a divine element there. So, yes, you're human beings, but you're not just human beings. You're spiritual beings. And in addition to that, your marriage is not just about you and your spouse, but it's about you, your spouse, and God. That there's this divine relationship. It's human and it's divine. So, do you see what I mean? So, when we look at Scripture, we have to look at it in that way as well. When you see weird grammar, you say, why would God use weird grammar? St. Paul and his run-on sentences. It's like, why would God do that? You know, it's like, well, because St. Paul is using his own faculties. He learned how to write the way that he did. And I suppose in Tarsus, that must be wonderful to have big, long run-on sentences, you know. Or Luke in his eloquent style. So, okay, you got a question? Um, you can say that, yeah. Okay, well, we can always say that, but people can, you know. Okay, so the question was, can't we say as Catholics that the Bible is a Catholic book? Um, yes, but we should understand it in this way, that when the New Testament was written, the church used parts of the Old Testament. And the books of the Old Testament that the church used, eventually as these different letters and gospels came in, they included that. But it was only in its final approved and decided version by 313 AD. So the first 300 years of the church's existence, there was no defined, this is the Bible and these books are included and these ones aren't. There were other books that were floating around there. Gospel of Thomas, uh, you know, Gospel of James. There were Gospel of Peter. There were these different, Gospel of Judas. There there are all these different works and things out there. Um, Some of them actually that weren't, necessarily even bad, like the Didache, for example, uh, but they didn't fit the criteria of what the church wanted when they talked about inspiration in Scripture. So if, if that's the case, and it took the church to discern and decide what conforms to the faith and what doesn't, what didn't conform to the faith, they would toss out. What did conform to the faith, as they understood it, because remember, it was passed down, right? So Jesus passed it to the disciples. The disciples passed it to the next generation. They preserve the context and the understanding of the faith. And then the books of the Bible that conform to that were accepted or explained that or directed toward that. And the ones that didn't, they would say, Gospel of Thomas, it's got some crazy things in it. 
you know, that's not on the same category or level as something like the Gospel of John. And so the book and it, the uh, church and its discernment um, formed the canon of Scripture, which included the Old Testament as we have it and the New Testament as we have it. But that, that took at least 300 years before there was a decided and definitive canon of Scripture. So in a sense, you can easily say that, well, the church preserved the Scriptures according to how it discerned whether that measured up to the revelation of Jesus and you know that gospel teaching. And those that didn't, didn't. So you would think, well, the church should have some authority when it comes to the book itself. Now, that being said, anybody and anywhere can take the Bible and read it and pray with it and do whatever they want. But historically, it was something that did come out of the church and it came out of the faith of the church. Right. So it doesn't exclude other people from being able to use it, but it does say that it did come out of the Catholic faith. Okay, so where are we at in this thing? Church's role, scripture and tradition, tradition, salvation history, revelation. Let's see here. Yeah. Well, you can always, yeah. When I talk about the scripture, we should be humbly discerning its meaning and intention. Um, but it's also easy to manipulate the scripture to say what I wanted to say. And so, yeah, it's like anyone can, can do that. I can make the Bible say what I want it to say. Because all I would have to do is go through and say, well, it says here, if, you know, if someone doesn't work, they don't eat. So that means I don't have to be generous to anyone who, you know, is is hungry. Well, St. Paul said it, not me. So that's right. That's okay, right? No, I'm manipulating the scripture to, to say something like that. So we have to be humble when it comes to the scripture and approach it in a humble way so that we're receiving the message rather than going the other way. And there's also a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. So exegesis in its traditional sense is trying to pull out of the scripture its original intention or its meaning where eisegesis is where I put into the scripture what I want it to say. So is that getting to the point of your question? It was really more about the church and how they picked and they, they, they chose what to put in and what not to put in. Okay. And like you said, it, it evolved over 300 years. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but you know, there still is that, there's a contention there about, you know, motive. Okay, so there could be, no, I know, but I think there could be the opinion, and I think many of the outsiders, not necessarily other Christians, because they they use what we put together as part of their canon as well, but I do know that there are some outsiders to the Christian experience who would say, for example, the Gospel of Thomas should be included, you know, and it was those, you know, those evil men that kept it from getting included, Um, but I don't know if those of you who have read some of what they call the Apocrypha, um, there's some very obvious differences um, between the theology and the... Like, for example, a lot of it is written in a Gnostic setting, and so Gnostics, for example, 
were dualist. And so they didn't believe necessarily monotheism. They believed that there's the God of light and good, and then there's the God of evil and darkness. And, and so they, they tended to be dualistic. And then they took the Christian workings and books and then rewrote them in a way that conformed with their theology. So when the, when the church, and, and it's not like the church had at that point like a 12 judges and they would go through it and all. It, most of it was in practice of saying this is what we receive and this is what we pass on. And there were judgments that came, but that was, like I said, hundreds of years later. So what they would do is they'd look at something like the, the Gospel of Thomas, which is Gnostic in nature, and they would say this does not conform to our monotheistic understanding of God, and it doesn't conform to Jesus who is human and divine. He's not just divine, because there was this Gnostic understanding that Jesus was more divine, but he really wasn't human. And some of the other writings that that followed that train of thought. And so, so the way that most Christians would understand it is that the church, and keep in mind when we talk about the church, it's not just the Catholic church, it's like all Christians. Uh, they preserved what they call that sacred deposit of faith. And that sacred deposit of faith was how the faith was passed down from Christ himself and then passed down to the next generation. And so the scriptures were part of that revelation and books that didn't conform to the revelation that was received were understandably not accepted. You know, so it wasn't like, because I know I saw this thing on TV, like the Discovery Channel tends to like, they like controversy, you know, and so, so they, they made sure that Irenaeus is using an evil voice, and I'm going to make sure that you're not going to take this, you know, but that's just historically not what happened. You know, historically what happened is that the church would read things that conformed to the belief that they'd received, and over time those became accepted and canonical. All right, so I know there are some, like, Da Vinci Code stuff and stuff like that, but really the Da Vinci Code is not real history. So, yeah. Okay, actually, that's a good point. We do not have a strong sense of oral tradition, and when we tell stories... Who knows what comes out, you know? Well, he said, and she said, and this sort of thing, and, and, and testimony and, and oral traditions are not so trustworthy. People in the old, old days, they had what they called these sacred oral traditions that they would receive and then pass on. And they would, it would be so sacred that they could not alter what they'd received when they passed it on. And I'll show you later on some of these oral traditions that got passed down where by the time they got passed down, they still told the story, even though they no longer understood the culture and the context in which the story came from. But that sacred oral tradition was so sacred, they felt they couldn't change it. For example, if I'm going to make up a Bible, and uh, like for those who say that, well, Abraham and all that stuff, it's a made-up history. If I were going to make up an Abraham and a Jacob history, why would I do it in a way that shows them to be in illegal marriages? doesn't make sense, does it? No, but the reason why is because that was a sacred history and an oral tradition that they continually passed down. And once they wrote these things down, sometimes they even lost the reason or the culture in which it came from, but they still wrote it down because of their respect for that sacred oral tradition. And in another way, um, our minds are pretty scattered nowadays. In the, in the ancient world, people would memorize 
And they had to because they didn't have the books that we have. So they would hear stories and they would commit it to memory. And you know, with the, with the Jews, for example, they would read from these scrolls and it would just be, everyone would just listen and they would hear it so many times that they would have to commit it to memory so they could tell their next generation or the kids. And they used to memorize entire books and almost the entire Old Testament would be memorized, including Psalms and everything else, which they'd pray on a daily basis. So we can't judge our lack of memory and our scattered thought process and think that somehow in the ancient world, they didn't have it a little better. They had to have it better because they had different circumstances. But they didn't have cars and they didn't have like all the technology we have and all that sort of thing. We can rely on on books and computers and all these things, so we don't necessarily have to keep everything so close at hand. Yeah. Yeah. It was in the like the community of the church, and because of that. It wasn't like Jesus told Peter and then Peter told Ignatius of Antioch who told Irenaeus. And, I mean, it wasn't like it was just one, one, one. It was, it was a context of something that was preserved and the people in the church found it so sacred and important that they really clung to that even among different cultures and contexts because somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Europe, and somewhere in Asia – but they still held to that same story and they passed it down in a complete context. And when there was a controversy that would come up, someone would say something like, well, I don't believe that Jesus was really human. I think he was just divine. Someone would come up with that opinion and the church would get together and they'd, they'd say, no, 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 we have, to, we have to hold to what has been passed down to us. And we, ther- we therefore reaffirm that Jesus was human and divine. And many of those old controversies that had to get worked in and they had even conferences with, or uh, councils for some of those. Um, but the bottom line is that their understanding of holding within a sacred oral tradition was something that we in the modern world don't hold in the same regard. So but anyway, I probably should move on from that. Otherwise, we could be here all day. So. But my, my basic reason for telling you this is as we read the Scripture, just keep in mind we read it not as individuals, but we read it as people of faith because it's the book of faith and it's the book of the church and it's from God for his people. And we who are the new Israel are intended to read it much more collectively than we like to think we need to. Um, This is a, a condition of the enlightenment in the Western world. We've individualized everything. But keep in mind that in the Old Testament especially, there wasn't really an understanding of you know, my individual faith and my Jesus or my Savior, my God. And I mean, there's some of that, but it's always within the context of the tribe or the family or, or the nation. All right, so now I need to move on. Some of this I talked about. You guys actually talked about it. I just answered. But um, So when we read the Bible, we have to understand that it was written in connection with and understood in connection with the liturgy. And before the church, there was the synagogue and there was the temple and there were religious celebrations and feasts and the word of God was used in those contexts and people received it in that context. 
in the New Testament world, there, there wasn't a Bible that was written, but what people would do is they'd get these different letters from Paul or the Gospels that eventually would come around, and they would read Old Testament texts, and then they would proclaim the Gospel of Jesus, and eventually they started incorporating Scripture. But the New Testament Scripture took um, oftentimes decades before they were you know, brought into the church for worship. So think about it. It's like 35 AD, two years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. This is before any of the works of the New Testament have been written down. So at church, they weren't proclaiming the New Testament scriptures. What they were doing is they were reading the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to the New Testament, and they would retell the stories of Jesus and, and uh, Jesus' gospel and his death and resurrection and his miracles. And in the church, there were always those who would receive it. So it was like the disciples and then the next generation who would receive that and then pass it on to the congregation. Over time, New Testament works started getting written. Then they would read those. So St. Paul's letters were actually written. Some of them were written before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So they would read St. Paul's letters. And then eventually they'd read some of the Gospels that came into being. And then some of the later like New Testament works like John and uh, about 100 AD. So that was like almost a 70-year span between the time of Jesus' death and resurrection and the time of the last gospel or the book of Revelation. So see what I mean? So the church had to preserve that in some way or the Bible would be meaningless. Or it, it wouldn't be meaningless maybe, but it wouldn't have the wholeness of thought and, and consistency. So why I mentioned the thing about the the liturgy or the Eucharist. Someone's phone's ringing. So the reason why I mention that is because we have the convenience of being able to pull our Bible out anywhere we're at and read it. In the ancient world, if you wanted to, if you wanted to hear the word of God, you would go to the synagogue or you'd go to a feast or they would just read it in public. But it was always something that was, it was read orally and received orally. And so most people would receive orally and they wouldn't necessarily read it. And so that means a lot of what were, what is written was intended to be heard rather than be read. It's just something to keep in mind. And sometimes it's, it's very subtle, but you're, you're getting these different references. Like the camera is moving from one person to another and almost like a play. And it's that way because it was meant to be heard. In, in theory, when we're at Mass, we shouldn't be reading or we shouldn't be looking at the screens or anything like that. We should just be receiving. But because of our visual world, we sometimes need aids. But at least theologically, we're supposed to be receiving it orally. All right. Some things were written specifically for the liturgy, like the Psalms. Um, that's a good example. They, they used to go in processions and they would have processional psalms and they would have songs they would sing and they would have psalms that they would pray at different hours of the day. And so many of the works that we have in the Bible were directly related to, to the liturgy itself, whether that's New Testament or Old Testament. They both did that. All right, so now we're going to do a little overview of Jewish history. So this is something that is just intended to give us an idea of what was going on with, first, you hear all three of these words used, Hebrews, 
You ever heard Hebrews like the Hebrews? And then you'll hear Israelites. And then you'll hear Jews. All right, so those three words refer to uh, the same people, but there are different historical circumstances. In In the very beginning, they were called Hebrews. And that was because they were Semitic, but they were this Hebrew clan. And they, that was the time around Abraham and the patriarchs and all that. They just called them Hebrews. And eventually they worked their way into Egypt. And at that time, you'll hear the word Hebrews being used over and over in, in the books of the Bible that are before the Exodus. After the Exodus, when the Hebrews um, came and settled into Canaan, which now will be called Israel, they became Israelites. So now that they're in Israel, it'll be called, that's the 12 tribes. They're called Israelites. Over time, there was this dividing that happened. After Solomon, there was a king that he didn't listen to the people he should have listened to. And there was the north and then there was the south. So the south tribe of Judah became Jews. And so the north ended up getting conquered by the Assyrian Empire, 721. And then the south got conquered by the Babylonian Empire in 587. But in the meantime, you have a divided kingdom. So for um, a few hundred years at least, about three and a half, 400 years, there was the north and the south. And so the north was considered Israel and the south was considered Judah. So then after the north was conquered by Assyria, the only, um, the only tribe that, that continued to have the temple and the worship and the faith is the, those were the Judaites, which became the Jews. All right, so you'll hear all three of those terms used, but one way to keep in mind is Judah became Jews, and then Israel was, you know, all 12 tribes, and then before that they were Hebrews. So if you read those words, they're almost interchangeably just different times in history. Okay, so in the beginning, all right, so we all heard about that with the uh, um, creation story, but we've got the beginning of... The, uh, the, the whole Hebrew experience started with basically Abraham, who moved out of Ur of the Chaldees and went into what is current-day Israel, the Holy Land. And so that is kind of the beginning of what the Jews would consider their history, their ancient history. And Abraham and his family, they would settle in some of those areas, and they lived there until after a while where... Abraham had died, and then the descendants of Abraham, uh, through famine and other reasons, they moved down to northern Egypt so that they could provide for their families. And so during that time, you've got this patriarch period. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants. And then over time, Joseph goes down into Egypt. And then you've got uh, the period of time before the exile. All right, just to give you a rough understanding, I put dates on it. So pre-monarchic, well, let's go on it up there. Okay, so I'll get to some of the guesses. So sometimes people talk about Abraham as being about 2000 BC. Sometimes they talk about 1850 BC. Sometimes they talk about Abraham as being somewhere around 1400 or 1450 BC. And uh, um, it seems that the 1450 BC works the best. But nobody knows for sure. So, But let's just say for the sake of argument, you've got that time happening with Abraham. And then you've got the 
um, the Exodus, and that's when the, they eventually went into Egypt, and then they came out with Moses. So the Exodus has been guessed to be 1450-ish B.C. or 1250 B.C. 1250 tends to be the one that most people think, scholarly-wise, um, is the more um, accurate date. So if you've got Abraham around 1450 and you've got the Exodus at 1250, then over time they settle into the promised land in that in-between time, between 1250 and um, a little over 1000 BC. And during that time, you've got the judges and the tribes that were, and we're getting to those books eventually, but you've got that period of time until you've got the king, Saul, as the first king. And after that, you've got King David. So a good marker is to say King David. Now, this one's pretty sure, 1000 B.C. We know that because by this time, the, the monarchy uh, was kind of the flooring, uh, flourishing of different types of literature, including many of the Old Testament books. And, uh, and dates were much more accurate and important at that time because they were settled in as opposed to tribes that are just kind of scattered all over the place. So 1000 B.C. is the time of David. 1250 Exodus, 141450 would be the time of Abraham. Or if you want to go back, if you want to go back further in history and say Abraham was 1850 and the Exodus was 1450, you can do that too. But no one knows for sure. I'm just throwing out the, some of the likely dates. Over time, what happened is Israel formed. There was the split between the north and the south. David was considered the golden era. And so you'll notice that once you get past David, all the references to the additional kings that came, they would always refer back to David. And they say, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did not do as David did. You know, so David was considered kind of the golden era. Uh, Solomon was too, David's son Solomon. During David and Solomon, you had about a hundred year swing, a little less than a hundred year swing, where there was stability and north and south was united. And this was the biggest extent of Israel when it comes to the land borders. And a lot of that was because the other powers, like Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia and the Hittites, they were all weak. And so that enabled Israel for the first time to actually be pretty strong because of the vacuum of power around them. Over time, the Assyrians grew in power, they conquered the north. The Babylonians grew in power, they conquered the south. You know, and so these were the, uh, the political realities. But they had this little window of opportunity where Israel, under David and Solomon, were the expanded and the borders were the furthest out. And they were in relative peace. Relative peace, you'll see there was a lot of warfare and stuff still. But you know, that was what they considered kind of the golden era. After that... The Assyrians, when they conquered 721 B.C., so this is, you know, almost 300 years after David, but the Assyrians conquered the north, and they deported a lot of the people. So they took all the important people, and they deported them and placed them in different areas in the Assyrian Empire. And then they took Assyrians, and they, they took five different Assyrian tribes and brought them in to the north and settled them in the land. The idea there is if I conquer a people, I deport their people and put my people in there, that takes away the power base for any kind of rebellion. This was very normal in the ancient world. We don't tend to do it today. But it'd be like, for example, um, let's say, for example, 
I'm trying to think of a World War II. So Germany goes in and conquers France, and then it takes the French people and then exports them, you know, to different areas in Germany and then takes Germans and then puts them in France. Well, it's kind of that mentality. That was a way that they could keep rebellion down. So that happened in the north. And in the south, it was 587 B.C. By this time, the Assyrians went downhill, the Babylonians rose, and they came in and conquered the south. And during that time, they did the same thing. They took all the important Jews, because it was a southern kingdom, and deported them into Babylon. And they took Babylonians and put them in different areas around Israel. So now the north and the south are gone. And there's this, what we call the Babylonian captivity. And it was for 50 or 70 years, depending on when you want to start, because there were more than one deportation. So for 50 to 70 years, Israel or the Jews did not exist in their own land except for some of the unimportant people that just still live there, kind of scrounging around. But all the important Jews were deported to Babylon and different areas around there. But it was also in Babylon that the Jews started compiling their practices, their books, and it was, in a sense, even though it was a terrible thing, they were deported, it ended up being a good thing in some respects because it helped to codify and unify the Jewish people and their faith and their practice of their religion. So... After this amount of time, after like 50 to 70 years, uh, the Persians came in and conquered Babylon. So you may have heard of Cyrus the Great. Maybe not, but anyway. Cyrus was the one who came in and conquered. And then what he did is he had a different outlook on things. He thought that it was better to let native peoples practice their own faith and to be able to even encourage that so that they would like him. And so he allowed the Jews to go back. And when the Jews went back to their homeland, it was pretty much a waste at this point. And they slowly started rebuilding. They rebuilt the temple, kind of a simple temple, and uh, rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem and then started settling. But they come up with a, a problem here because now all the Jews that are moving back there, how do they assimilate with the people who are now living there? Because there, there are other nations and people who are following different gods so if we intermarry with them, that's going to diffuse what we have. And so there was a, the, the priest Ezra, for, for example, in the book of Ezra, has real strong codes about, no, Jews need to marry Jews so that we preserve the faith and the people. Because if we don't, we're going to be lost. And so that was a real strong thing. The book of Ruth, in contrast, was saying, well, Ruth was a Moabite and she was good. You know, so let's not be so rigid about these things. So there were two competing schools of thought. Um, but... In the end, the Jews did preserve their identity and they resettled the land just in time for Alexander the Great to come through and conquer it again. So Alexander the Great conquered the Persians and then after that came in and conquered, um, well, he conquered Israel before the Persians. But um, after that happened, then they were under the rule of the Greeks. So first Alexander the Great and then what happened is Alexander the Great died pretty young, and there were two generals that, that uh, were fighting over who would get Israel, uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So the Ptolemies came up from Egypt and took over, and the Seleucids came down from Syria and took over. But um, you can read about that in the book of Maccabees and some of the other books. So the Greek period started, and that was in the early 300s. And then around 150 um, or around 200, I should say, there was the Maccabean Revolt. So the, a bunch of Jews revolted against the, 
Seleucid kings, the Greek ones, and started for a short time the uh, kind of some self-rule kind of, but it only lasted for a while until the Romans came in around 150 AD or BD, BC. The Romans came in and then conquered Israel, and then the Romans were there, obviously, when Jesus was as well. So, so this is kind of a, a basic history that we have, and it was something that went for about 1,500 years or so, or something in that range. So a lot happens in the Old Testament. And, and the different books of the, the Bible that you'll be reading will, will be um, coinciding with different um, parts of that history. All right, so that's the history. Oh, the canon of the Old Testament. I should mention something about that. Uh, there was, it, during the Greek period, the latter part of the Greek period, there was uh, a need in Alexandria where they had this huge library to have a, a copy of the Bible, but they wanted it in Greek. And so they got all the rabbis from Alexandria to do a translation from Hebrew into Greek, and that became what we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint translation became what was ordinarily used in the New Testament church. So the uh, New Testament Christians would use the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament in their worship. And where where this was a little different was that the Septuagint included the books that we call like those Catholic books like Tobit and, and Sirach and Maccabees and all that. Uh, but the church just always used it because the people of the time, including the Jews, would use it because Greek was more accessible and this was like the official translation. And uh, uh, Greek is kind of like English in the world today. It was kind of the universal language. Uh, people commonly spoke Aramaic and there were some Targums that they would use, but for the most part, what was being used would be the Greek or the Hebrew in certain areas in in Israel or in uh, Judah. I know, maybe I'm saying too much there, but yeah. Okay, that's a big... Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were a series of scrolls that were discovered, and most were in Hebrew, and they were mostly... For the Essenes, which were the most strict observant Jews of the time. So to give you one example is, is a, uh, if I'm living in the city of Jerusalem, because the Essenes weren't only the monk Essenes, but if I'm living in the uh, city of Jerusalem, if I am a Pharisee, I can, on the Sabbath, I can leave the city and uh, go to the bathroom and come back. Now, if I am an Essene, um, I can leave the city, but I don't have enough steps left to come back because they, they interpreted the law very strictly, much more uh, rigidly and strictly than the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were kind of the liberals, actually, and the Essenes were the more conservatives. So if that's the case, the Essenes wanted to use the Hebrew and because they considered the Pharisees and uh, they considered them like, uh, like almost apostates. And then they also considered the, um, the temple priests and everything as not being valid anymore. And so the Sadducees, for example, they didn't consider them valid. Um, so anyway, the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were mostly Hebrew. Actually, I think they may have almost all been Hebrew.
But the common language and the, the, what people would use in the everyday tended to be the, the Greek and the Hebrew, both. Okay, so. Actually, I saw the dead. Has anyone else seen those Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, I couldn't read them, but I saw them. <laughs> Actually, if you want, you can go on your computers and they have them all, right? You know, you can find them on your computer screen. Okay, so getting back to the canon, since the Septuagint was used, that's what the church accepted as the books of the Old Testament. The Jews pretty much rejected anything that was in Greek. Once the Christians started gaining a little more influence, then the Jews retreated to a sense, and they became much more strict about which books they would use in the synagogue. And the destruction of the temple in 70 AD um, helped to do that to a certain degree to to help them to kind of uh, boil down their practices. And, and, and uh, one of the things they did is they decided that if it wasn't in Hebrew, they didn't want it in the canon. So they tended to take out those Greek written books, parts of Daniel and Tobit and Sirach and Maccabees and all that. So they took those ones out of the Bible. And when the Protestant Reformation came about, um, it started with Martin Luther not liking certain books of the Old Testament, disagreed with his theology including Maccabees, but basically what they decided to do was we're going to take the Hebrew canon like the Jews and not take the traditionally accepted Greek works as well. So this, it's kind of a myth now. Sometimes you'll hear that. It's like, you Catholics added books to the Bible. No, it was the other way around, actually, historically. But, you know. but the canon of the Old Testament was something that developed, and it was pretty much set around the time of Jesus. And then the, uh, you know, it was finally decided on a little later, I think about 100 AD or something like that, for the Jews. For the Christians, they accepted the Septuagint always, but they later added the New Testament books, and then those final list of books were written down and pretty much accepted by about 300 AD. So it gives you a range of how that all works. Wouldn't it be nice if everything was just black and white and simple? You know, but that, that's the nature of history. People always want things to be, you know, so, so easy, and sometimes it's not. Okay, there are different approaches when it comes to the Bible. And one of the things about the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church doesn't say you have to take this particular approach, and it's the only one you can do. So, for example, you all know fundamentalists, right? There's a fundamentalist approach to the Scripture, if it's there, I read it, I believe it literally. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, you know, if there's something symbolic or figurative, I'm going to read it literally because, to be honest, it's kind of a, an easy way to do it. And it, it kind of keeps the guesswork out. And a lot of people read the Bible literally. And personally, I don't really have a problem with it as long as there's some sort of context because it, it wouldn't make sense to read everything literally because things change over time. And there are different theologies even in the Bible. So in some sections of the Bible, they'll talk about how it's you know, totally okay to go through and just wipe out entire cities. And in other parts of the Bible, they'll say, you know, turn the other cheek. So what do you do with these sort of things? You know, so you have to have some sort of context. And my hunch would be that most people who say, I read the Bible literally, don't read it rigidly literally. Because you have to have some sort of context. Now, on the opposite extreme, you've got what they call the minimalists. So the minimalists will, first of all, say, I personally don't believe in miracles. So if there's ever a miracle in the Bible, then I'm just going to discount it outright. 
that superstitious stuff that happened to those ancient people who aren't as smart as us moderns. You know, so that's kind of their mindset. Um, if something is not supported historically, if there's not a document to support it, if there's not archaeological evidence to support it, it didn't happen. And when you look at one of the shifts that has happened, because um, the, the Bible was a book of the church and it was studied um, more often through theologians and this sort of thing, what happened in the 50s and 60s, well, and to be honest, before that even in the 1800s, but it started to be something that was looked at as we need to study it uh, away from the faith so we can understand what really happened and, and apply scientific tools to it. Anyway, not, that's not necessarily bad, but it is bad if you, in the outset, say, if there's ever a miracle in the Bible, it just didn't happen because miracles don't happen. And if something doesn't have supporting evidence, meaning historically written outside sources or archaeological evidence, then it didn't happen. And so that's why, to this day, actually, a lot of the academics uh, will teach this. They'll say, well, there was no David. There was no Solomon. That was a history that the Jews made up to kind of give their faith some sort of credentials. Um, Abraham never really existed. There were no real patriarchs. There was no real exodus. So this is kind of a common thing. Um, That would be on the opposite side. Those would be what you call like the minimalists. And they will only accept what is absolutely provable using scientific sources and not using necessarily internal sources in the scripture itself. Does that make sense? All right. So there is another approach, which is what you call it kind of maximalists. And uh, this, I think, is probably most Catholic scholarship probably falls into that camp. And that is where we don't necessarily read everything literally, but some things you do. Like, history should be read literally if they're intended to be histories in the literal sense. Um, when Jesus preaches and says, um, you know, turn the other cheek, and when, when uh, Jesus does a miracle, that we would believe those things. When it comes to the idea of the Exodus and all that, then we'd say, well, yes, the Exodus did happen. Did it happen exactly in the exact same way, literally, where 600,000 people came out? Well, maybe not, because there are theological reasons why they're using some of those numbers. Does it mean that uh, some of the patriarchs didn't live to be six, seven hundred, eight hundred years? Well, not necessarily, because those numbers have symbolic meaning, and they don't necessarily need to be read literally. And, and so I guess the maximalist camp is where you basically say, well, yeah, Solomon and David and all those guys, they, they lived and they existed, Uh, The history that got written down might be slightly different depending on theological reasonings or other factors, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And there are some cultural and historical roots to even those ancient stories that we see in the Scripture. So this is probably what you would call maximalist, which most Catholic scholars probably fall into that camp. But many Catholic scholars kind of fall in the minimalist camp. And so I'm a maximalist. I'm going to tell you outright. So I'm not an overly literalist. And so, for example, in, in my outlook, it's, it's totally acceptable to take ancient literature and to read it and understand it in the style in which it was written and not apply some sort of worldview that is just convenient for me in the 21st century world. You know, so, for example, looking at the story of creation, there's a theology in that story of creation and in, in the style of 
of literature and language that's being used. It doesn't necessarily mean that God is saying, okay, I'm going to take this light and this darkness and take my hands and move it and that sort of thing. Because this is almost like poetry. It's metaphorical language. And it's written in a style that is different than some of the histories of the book of Kings, you know, or in the book of Maccabees or something like that. So, so personally, I believe that there's good reason, and I'll show some of that, uh, to believe that people like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and, you know, the descendants existed. Um, but it's okay to exaggerate some things because in ancient histories, they used to do that. And so when, when the Israelites or the Hebrews came out of Egypt, for example, if there were really 600,000 people trying to survive in the Sinai, it'd be kind of hard to do. There's not enough wells. There's, you know, it would, I'm not saying it's beyond the scope of God to provide water for the people, but, um, Sometimes in the scripture and in other ancient literature, they exaggerate things to show that God favored them. So there was a theological reason that's being applied to that particular text. All right, so don't be saying, Father Mike's saying it's not true. Anyway, so, but, but anyway, that's just kind of the, the approach that I have. Um, in addition to that, there is a bit of a progression that happens in the Bible as well. In the very beginning, for example, when you're reading those first um, books that, like Genesis, for example, you'll notice this, there's God, and then there are these gods, little g gods, and then there's God. And there are hints of a strict monotheism. And I mean, strict monotheism is only God exists, no other gods exist. Now, a different kind of, I shouldn't call it monotheism even, but uh, that's where you have well, our God is Yahweh, and those other gods, those are their gods, but we worship our God, Yahweh. And in the very beginning, there was almost this understanding that we worship Yahweh, he is our God, and he's the one that we worship. And those other Canaanites and Phoenicians and Babylonians and all that, they can worship whatever they want, but we worship this God. Now, over time, what happened is they, especially after the exiles, so what do you do if you're a Jew and you say, my God is in my land, Israel? Because gods in the ancient world tended to be in particular places. So you had the Babylonian gods in that place. You had the Egyptian gods in that place. And then you had Yahweh in, in the Canaanite areas that the, the Israelites came into. And so what they would do is they would say, that's our God. But now all of a sudden we're being exiled. So now that I'm in Babylonia or Assyria or Egypt... What God do I worship? I can't worship their gods. I have to worship our God, even though I'm in a different place. Well, it didn't take long for them to figure out that, well, there must only be one God if I'm in their place, and this is the God that's real. And so over time, this is when you have the prophets saying things like Isaiah, for example. They got their gods. They got mouths but can't speak, and they got hands but can't, you know. And, and so they were very, very quickly after that, became an understanding that there is only one God and no other gods exist. Right? Do you see how that progressed, though? Um, something else that progressed is the idea of angels. In the very beginning, when you're reading about angels in the book of Genesis, for example, usually that would be considered a manifestation of God himself. And then that manifestation of God himself is God speaking directly or doing something directly. And that idea of angel was just the message. Now, over time, then what happened is 
angels became understood as beings. And so those messages were not God speaking, but intermediaries, which were speaking on behalf of God, the angels. And so there is a difference, for example, between the angels that you'll see in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and the angels that you'll see in Genesis. So that, that movie they had, or the TV show, remember the books of the Bible, when they would have the, the angels and the angels would just kind of be like people. But that's kind of what they describe in the book of Genesis. They were just kind of like people. They didn't have wings and all this kind of stuff like, or they didn't have this divine um, manifestation in that way. So it was much more simply understood in the old days. And then over time, theology progresses, doesn't it? You know, think about the church. It doesn't change, but it progresses. And it's the same thing in the Old Testament. So you've got those earlier understandings of God that developed over time. Yeah, I just thought of something else and forgot it. So, but anyway, there's also this understanding of covenants. And we'll talk about covenants a little later, but covenants is, that's when God says, I'm going to enter into a special relationship with my people. And so Adam and Eve, there was a covenant relationship there. God said, you do this, I do that. Not a lot of expectations here. Just don't eat the fruit, you know. But, but anyway, there was kind of an understanding. And that's how you live in harmony is you have this relationship. Now, in, in the ancient world, covenants were um, kind of like treaties or contracts. But they were more than that because they were bonds that had interaction. Like, for example, if we have laws in, in our world, it's like, okay, speeding. If you go faster than 55, you can get a ticket. If you don't, you won't. You know, that's a law. But a covenant would be a special relationship where um, the, the governors and I would meet and we'd work out what we want to agree upon and then we could change it and we'd have to proclaim it on a, on a yearly basis and it's, it's just much more involved. And there's a familial sense to that. And so in... It's like, I'm going to meet with this king, and I'm a king, and we're going to work out a relationship, and we're going to seal it um, with our agreement, and we're going to do it in a way that that is going to join us in, in a sacred way. So God enters into covenant relationships. And so that happens with Adam and Eve. Then it happens with Noah. And then it happens with Abraham. And then it happens with David. And then it happens with Jesus in the church. So, so anyway, but these are, are subs- oh, Moses. I forgot Moses. How could I forget Moses? But anyway, those are, those are covenant agreements, arra- arrangements, and relationships. So we have to kind of go beyond our uh, law background or contract background and look at it more as a, a kind of a relational type. All right, where am I at here? This one's covenant building. Okay, well, how are y'all doing? Should I keep going, or do you need a break? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> you want a break? I'll give you five minutes. How about that? Okay, stretch break. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.